The message text this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 28. So I'm going to read that for us. You can find your way there in the Bibles in front of you or on your mobile device. But turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen as I read God's word. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ... We are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father to the God the Father after he has, des- has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who puts everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Happy Easter. I'm so glad to be getting into 1 Corinthians and considering the resurrection of Jesus with you all. If I haven't met you before, my name's Matt. I serve as one of the pastors here at Elmwood. Uh, There are pew Bibles right in front of you. If you didn't get a moment to actually open up to 1 Corinthians 15, let me encourage you to do that because if you know me, you know we're gonna be really, really digging deep into this text and I'm excited for what it has for us. But let me pray uh, and then we will consider the resurrection of Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it reminds us of the historical reality of what you did for us in taking on flesh to live the life that we could never, dying the death that we deserve and rising again to new life so that we might have confidence that one day we might have new life through you as well. We pray that as we look at your word this morning that you would move in our hearts, that you would encourage us and convict us as necessary. And I pray that as I speak, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable before you. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Do your work among us and be glorified. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the things that I found out rather quickly 
uh, when I had started to date Holly, my wife, is that I was uh, gonna get married into a family that really valued games, specifically board games. And I know many of you are, are into them as well, but let me tell you, this is not something uh, that I had grown up with. My family, when they had free time, they would usually watch TV. That was kind of our default. We would watch movies, we would watch TV shows. My dad is a huge uh, sports fan, and so if there was a football game going on, that would be the default for how we would spend our free time. But I really came over time to appreciate the, the Hanson family and how they would spend time playing games together because I realized that playing games together and board games is about more than just playing games. It's, it's creating a space where you can relationally exist, where you can have real conversations, where you can connect with one another. And I've really come to appreciate this about them. One of the most recent games that we played is a game that is called Pinnacle. Has anyone ever played Pinnacle before? So this is a game uh, that I had actually received from Conquistando, which is one of the church communities that meets in our building. Uh, and if you're not familiar with it, you're probably familiar with Jenga. Okay, so this is like a fancy form of Jenga where the colored ones have certain rules around that. But when we play Jenga, it's that game where you're taking the the little blocks, little pieces, and you're trying to build up as high as you can without everything coming crumbling down. And you have to be super careful because if you move the wrong piece, then it could spell disaster. And that's actually my my one-year-old's favorite part of the whole thing. As soon as a little bit of it starts to fall down, he comes over and he just likes to whack everything all off the table. But as we, as we think about this this morning, as we look at the text of 1 Corinthians, we see that Paul is issuing this church a very stern warning that they are moving a piece that is vital to their faith foundation. Now, this church in Corinth was a church that Paul had started in his second missionary journey. And Corinth is a a Greek port city, which was known for a couple of really positive things, idolatry and sexual immorality. So much so to the point where if you were going to call somebody easy or sexually promiscuous, you would call them a Corinthian. Now, as you might imagine, as Paul started this church, there were some really interesting characters that had showed up and decided they wanted to follow Jesus, which led to some really interesting and complex issues. And so Paul writes to this church and addresses some of these issues in 1 Corinthians, which is actually the second letter that he wrote to them, and he addresses what's going on. He tells them that they have some disordered worship practices that they need to get in line. He addresses some of their sexual sin, and he addresses the fact that they were factioning themselves around certain church leaders in instead of around Jesus himself. But as we think this morning about the resurrection of Christ, I think it's pertinent for us to look at 1 Corinthians 15, because here, Paul speaks to them about another issue that they are having as a church community. They are having issues with the idea of the resurrection. Now, it's not exactly clear why they're having issues, Many of them were Greeks, and the ideal in the Greek world was that the the ultimate hope was that you could live in a disembodied existence someday. But I think the reason that Paul is writing this is because he's trying to make it clear that that is not the biblical idea. The biblical hope is that one day, as as, uh, John had prayed, that we would live in an embodied existence, in a new creation where God dwells with his people and they with him. And so Paul is addressing some of this. So here's what they said. Here, Here seems to be what is going on. That this church was saying this. Yes, Jesus might have been raised from the dead. Yes, God might have given him a glorified body. But that's not gonna happen with us. 
That's not what we're going to experience. God would not do that. Look at verses 12 and 13 with me. He begins to address this. He says, if it's preached that Christ was raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? Addressing the resurrection of of Christ's people at the end of the age. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So Paul sees a real issue here in their thinking. He tells them, okay, if God is not a God who raises bodily from the dead, then that must include Christ. And if that includes Christ, then we have a real problem. Because the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of his people are inseparable events. And to tweak one is to screw with the other. And to question one is to question the other. In other words, as they're questioning the resurrection of God's people, they're in effect questioning the resurrection of Jesus. And he's telling them that they are playing a dangerous game of theological Jenga. And if they're not careful, they're going to pull that piece out and they're going to make shipwreck of their faith. And friends, this same fact holds true for us as well as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus today. If Jesus was not raised, then we have a real problem. In fact, we have a number of problems about this, and and, and Paul is going to get into them, and we'll look at what he says here, because he rightfully understands this fact that we need to keep in mind that everything hinges on the resurrection. All of our hope lies in the fact of whether Jesus was, in fact, raised from the dead. So take a look at your Bibles with me. Look at verse 14. The first thing that Paul says for them is that if Christ was not raised, then we have preached and we have believed a lie. It says, if Christ was not raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are found then to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about him that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. So if Christ wasn't raised, we have preached and believed a lie. In 2002, uh, Steven Spielberg came out uh, with a movie called Catch Me If You Can. Anyone seen Catch Me If You Can? Super good movie, early, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hanks. I would highly recommend it. And effectively, what Catch Me If You Can is, it's a, a biography of a guy named Frank Abagnale Jr., who is uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie. And Frank Abagnale Jr. is one of the most persistent con artists of the past 50 to 100 years. And he was accused of a number of things. He was accused of fraud. He was accused of, of forgery. He even went so far, and this is where it gets really entertaining, and this happens in the movie, this happened in real life, that more than once, he would uh, impersonate a doctor, and an airline pilot. So imagine getting onto a plane and your airline pilot is not actually an airline pilot. That would be fun. But, but what you find is that throughout this whole movie, he is just one lie after the other. He's actually getting caught up in his lies, so he can't turn back. He has to actually keep going forward. And as much as the movie is entertaining and you're watching you know, Tom Hanks, the FBI agent, try and track him down, what you find by the end of the movie is you realize that this lie simply cannot last. It is insufficient to sustain his lifestyle. All that to say, Frank Abagnale Jr. did end up spending a decent amount of time in jail. He eventually got out and he found a little bit more of a redemptive path as he he opened kind of his own security organization to help other organizations because he used to exploit their insecurities. So he helped to point some of those things out for them. But as we hear this story, that justice was served, right? That, That the bad guy was caught. I think we know this to be right. Deep down inside of us, we understand 
that it is fundamentally wrong to con people and to dupe people. That's why when we look at the news and we see somebody getting caught from a a Ponzi scheme, we shake our heads and say, yeah, it's right that you were caught. How could you do that? That's why over the past three to five years, one of the, the big buzzwords that is constantly condemned is this idea of false narratives. It's because we care about what is actually true. One of the more positive ways this is expressed as a value of our culture is in this idea of authenticity. Everybody wants to be true to themselves. They want to be genuine. They want to live out the way that they believe they are called to live. And there is a strong skepticism in our cultural moment around anything that sounds like an agenda that goes beyond what you see on the surface. And this reveals something that deep down inside of us, Regardless of if we sometimes see the truth being distorted, we actually believe that the truth does matter. And the truth of the matter is this this morning, that if the resurrection never happened, then Christians are either the greatest liars or the most gullible people on earth. For those of us who have lied, we've actually been going around and telling people something that God did not actually do. And if that's true, then it is true that Christianity is dangerous and should be rejected. Others of us have, in fact, believed the lie that we are like the the poor people that get caught up into these pyramid schemes only to find out that it's wrong and suffer the consequences. But Paul goes a step further than this. He actually says it's more dire than this. He tells us that not not only are we those people that have lied before others in in terms of, okay, we, we are telling you a lie, but we have misrepresented God. We are worthy of not only people's disgust, but of his condemnation. So if, if the resurrection never happened, both our reputation with man and our standing before God is under real threat. Paul then goes on to say this, if Christ was not raised, then the problem of sin still remains. Look at verses 17 to 18. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. So as you think about this problem of sin remaining, I'd venture to say that as we think about the cross and the resurrection, this is probably where our heads generally go. We think about the idea of sin. We think of the idea of righteousness. But I want to dig into this just a little bit because here is Paul's point. That as we think about the resurrection, not only is eternity on the line, our future hope, But our present hope for forgiveness of sins is on the line if Jesus was not raised from the dead. Paul says this in Romans 4.25. He kind of echoes this idea. He says, he, being Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. So to be justified before God, to stand in right relationship with him, to be restored to him, is dependent not only on the fact that Jesus died on a cross and was buried, but it is incredibly necessary that he was also raised from the dead. And this is because his resurrection validates that he was who he claimed to be. It is the validation for us and and the sign that God the Father accepted Jesus' resurrection, uh, resurrection, his, his sacrifice, excuse me, on our behalf. And it is the affirmation that Jesus did not just die to death, but that he conquered it. Let me say that again. The resurrection is the affirmation that Jesus didn't just die to death, but that he overcame it, that he conquered it 
on our behalf. Friends, apart from such a resurrection, there is no hope. And Paul says that this hope, this lack of hope, if you will, is not just for us, but it's actually for those who, who have died before us. It says for all of those who have gone to the grave, right? The, those in Christ who have fallen asleep, as he says. If this is all a sham, then they are lost as well. They could never and will never be saved. Practically for us now, if this is true, then the weight of our sin that we feel, that burden, still rests upon our shoulders. When we lie awake at night or when we have those moments of silence and we recognize the brokenness within ourselves and the brokenness in our world, if Jesus did not come back from the dead, then that is still something that we are left to deal with all alone. There is no true redemption for our misdeeds and there is no justice for the misdeeds that have been done to us. There is simply the need to hope to hope that as we stand before a holy God, that we will simply be good enough. And that is a hope that the scriptures say time and time again is simply non-existent. So in effect, there is no hope. Paul also says that their faith is futile. That is to say that it doesn't matter how much they hope in Jesus. If Jesus is not a sufficient savior, then it's all a waste then their sin still remains upon them. It's as if you took a a broken shovel and you were trying to dig a hole. It doesn't matter how much you want that hole to get get dug. If, If the shovel is broken, the job is not going to get done. And if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then he is an insufficient savior and will not get the job done of saving you. It doesn't matter how much you hope. It doesn't matter how much you submit to God. If Jesus was not raised, then the problem of sin and the brokenness of our world still remains upon us. But remember, this is only if Jesus was not raised. I know this is the most positive Easter message you've ever heard in your life. Final thing. I'm just saying what the text says, guys. If Christ was not raised, here's what he says. We have wasted our lives even now. Paul has gone on this kind of tangent about, okay, the future hope is gone if Jesus isn't raised. The past hope for all of those who have trusted in Christ is gone if Jesus isn't raised. But what about us now? And he says, even now for us, our lives are a waste. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. This should sting for us probably a little bit as we sort through this. I want those of us who are Jesus followers here this morning to just consider something with me for a moment. I want you to reflect with me upon what your life would have been like had you not met Jesus. For many of us, our life probably would have been in rough shape, right? We might have been enslaved to all kinds of vices. We might have found ourselves some pretty awful people. We might have found ourselves wrestling with addictions that we couldn't break free of. Others of us actually might have ended up on the other end of the spectrum, where we would have made more self-centered choices instead of following Jesus. We would have been less sacrificial. We would have looked out for number one, would have looked out for me, and we actually might have ended up with more success in this life. But what we find is to put our hope in Jesus for the future must inform how we live now. So consider with me for a moment, what have you given up for Jesus? How have you changed your life in response? Actually, we'll say it like this. How has God's spirit changed your life 
in response to the resurrection of Jesus. For those here who would not call themselves Jesus followers, how have Christians called you to live a different life as a result of one who would follow Jesus? If you have that all in your mind, I just want you to recognize this, that if Jesus was not raised, then all of that sacrifice, all of the ways that your life has changed is in fact a waste. Paul says in verse 32 this, he kind of puts words to this. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. What Paul is saying is that if Christ wasn't raised, why not live for ourselves? Because part and parcel for our faith is that we are are called to live now in light of the then. But if Jesus wasn't raised, there is no then for us to look forward to. There is only the now. So why not do what we want? The logical conclusion of all of this, if Jesus was not raised, is that our lives just simply don't matter. If we've been living under the lordship, Christians, of a faulty savior, then people should indeed pity us. What a pathetic life it would be to commit ourselves so deeply to something that never comes to fruition. How much have we missed out on? How much have we said no to that we could have said yes to if Christ's promises are not true? If everything hinges on a resurrection that never happened, then our lives are but a waste. But let me remind you, friends, that this is only if Christ was not raised. Because today we celebrate something significant. We celebrate the fact that the tomb was empty. Today we celebrate the fact that he is risen, amen? And we should rejoice in this, rejoicing in the fact that the savior that we needed, one who could conquer death, is exactly the savior that God gave us as he took on flesh. And because of that, Paul says, everything changes about everything. Here's where it gets a little bit more positive for you. He says, if Christ was raised, then the best is yet to come. Verses 20 to 22, but Christ has indeed risen, he says. He has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. alive. Paul says that we can be under one of two team captains, on one of two teams, under one of two leaders, we can either be under Adam, our ancestor, who rebelled against God and died, or we can be under the risen Lord Jesus, the one who gives life to his people. And as a result of the team that we choose, there are one of two trajectories for us. We can either be with the man of the dust, Adam, who went back to the dust in his grave, or we can trust in the God-man who came from heaven in order to raise us out of that grave. Paul says that he is the first fruits. You know what the first fruits are? The first fruit is that, that first stock of the harvest that shows up, that says that there is more to come, that indicates the quality of what is to come. Paul's saying that just because Jesus is raised from the dead, just in that alone, we can be sure that we too, if we trust in him, will be raised as well. And just as he was raised with a glorified body, he speaks into their question and says, you too will be, glorif- will be glorified and raised into a body that will never perish or waste away. 
This is what the apostle John echoes in 1 John when he says, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. He also says that if Christ is raised, the best is yet to come and our future is guaranteed. Now this is the longest and probably the most confusing section. So bear with me here. He kind of elaborates on what he had just said. Verse 23, but each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, the first one, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign, Jesus, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that he doesn't include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he, Christ, has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So here's what we read here in this chapter. We read that Jesus' resurrection sets into motion events that naturally now will lead to God saving his world. We read that now that Jesus has come back from the dead, he is in charge. He has put every authority, every power, good or bad, under his feet. As he says when he came back from the dead in Matthew, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And this will go all the way until the end. And at the end, he will raise his people from the dead and he will finally put to death the last enemy of God's people, death itself. And then finally, the son will give the kingdom over to the father. And in this way, God, father, son, and spirit will be all in all. That's Paul's way of saying that God will rightfully rule in perfection over all that he has made. He will have reclaimed his world and he will have reconciled his people to himself. We have to recognize the resurrection is our hope for both today and tomorrow. It is our hope for those in the past who have come before us, who have trusted in Christ. You see, as we process this, we have to recognize that there are one of two options that exist. It's either that Christ was not raised and the most foolish thing that we can do is trust in him, or Christ was indeed raised and the most foolish thing that we can do is reject that and fail to recognize him as Messiah and Lord. And today I want to invite us afresh to set our hope upon the fact that that tomb was empty, that Christ has indeed been raised. Christians, I want you to hear this from Revelation chapter one and take heart in this and just be encouraged today. This is what Jesus says, the resurrected Lord to his apostle John as they wait for the end. Jesus says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys to death and Hades. He is in charge of death itself and at some point he will put death to death. Those who are not yet Christians here, maybe those of you who uh, once considered yourself to be a Jesus follower and have strayed away from the Lord, I wanna invite you back to him. I want to invite you back to the one in whom you will find rest for your souls, asking yourself this question, what is holding me back from making the risen Lord my risen Lord? No matter where you come from, no matter what you faced, no matter what your situation is in life, the fact is, is that he still loves you. And despite the fact that we have rebelled against that love time and time again, he suffered in your place for your sin 
on a cross and died a death that you rightfully deserve before a holy God. And today we remember that God raised Christ up so that you and I and all of us in this room might place our faith in him and be saved. So I invite you to repent of your sin and set your hope and trust upon the risen Lord Jesus himself. And as we come to the Lord's table and take communion today, I want us to hold fast to the reality that our hope is secure because of Christ's resurrection. Everything hinges on this resurrection. And as Paul has made clear, this has happened. And so we can have hope in what is still yet to come. So let's take a moment to reflect and then we will pray and we'll come to the Lord's table. And as we reflect, I just wanna encourage you to remember that Jesus not only died in your place as we remembered on Good Friday, but the fact is, is that he is indeed risen. So let's pray. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed by the things that we have done and by the things that we have left undone. Lord, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, our mind and our strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, it's so easy for us to forget the the reality of the resurrection and how that informs our lives even now, the great hope that we have because you raised your son from the dead. Lord, some of us sit here today and and we have not come to faith in Jesus. We have not come to a place where we believe he is worthy of our life. But Lord, as we think about what you have done for us in Christ, as we think about the fact that you have conquered the enemy that we will never conquer, Lord, one out of one people dies except for Jesus. And so we trust in him, Lord, that he is able to raise even our mortal bodies. So Lord, in the ways that we have rejected you, in the ways that we have sinned against you, in your mercy, would you forgive what we have been? Would you help us amend what we are and would you direct what we shall be so that we might delight in your will and have a renewed hope and resurrection at the end of the age and even now walk in your ways, all to the glory of your name and all God's people said.